there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. Well, hey there, it's Liz Rohr from Real World NP, and you're watching NP Practice Made Simple, the weekly videos to help save you time, frustration, and help you learn faster so you can take the best care of your patients. So this week's video I'm really excited about. I'm always excited, but I'm especially excited because it's piggybacking off of last week's video talking about when to use antibiotics. I'm going to be talking about COPD and COPD exacerbation. So um, from this video, you're going to be able to know um, what is an exacerbation, like who, who has one, um, how to treat them, when you need to use antibiotics, and if you do, which ones. Um, when to send them to the ER, um, and just general principles of management of COPD and primary care things, just kind of like a little checklist for you to follow along with. Um, and uh, on that note, I have a, a COPD management cheat sheet to download below this video if you want to check that out to follow along with in this video. There's going to be a couple tables talking about all the medications, the vaccines, all that good stuff. So definitely check it out. Without further ado, I'm going to be sharing my screen with you. All right, so let's hop into the case study. So this is Carolyn. She's 62 years old. Uh, she is complaining of a cough um, and she has a history of COPD. She is a new patient to you effectively if you want to treat it this way. As our, When you're a new nurse practitioner, most patients are going to be new to you. So I feel like it's most helpful to kind of frame it in that way. So um, this is not her real name or her photo. So she uh, woke up this morning with a lot of coughing and wheezing and she's needing to use her nebulizer every two hours. Um, uh, she's been coughing up green phlegm since yesterday, um, which is not usual for her. And she typically has some dyspnea when she's hurrying or walking upstairs, but otherwise she can walk without breathlessness. Um, but today, um, yesterday and today, she's now dyspnea, uh, dyspnea on exertion. That's what that DOE stands for, um, with level ground walking, um, but not at rest. So she's sitting comfortably, but as soon as she starts kind of walking, she gets a little bit um, short of breath. And she hasn't had this happen in over a year, which is important um, when we get into talking about COPD exacerbation. So Past medical history, surgical history, according to her, because we don't have her record. She's a brand new patient. Um, she has a history of COPD and hypertension, and she doesn't know had she hasn't had any surgeries before. Her family history, just unknown, no nothing contributory there. Um, she smokes a pack a day, and she has since age twenty. Um, so that's about forty-two pack years. Um, no alcohol or drugs. So blood pressure today is 138 over uh, 86. Her heart rate is 90, and oxygen is 94, and her BMI is 31. So she's taking ipatropium albuterol nebulizer as needed right now. Before she was having new symptoms, she really only used albuterol um, meter dose inhaler, um, MDI, just as needed. She wasn't using it on a regular basis. So for an ROS, uh, just to recap, she's having dis the positives are that she's having a dyspnea, uh, dyspnea on exertion, wheezing, shortness of breath, and coughing. Um, her ROS is negative, though, importantly, for, you know, no fever, no chills, no chest pain, rashes, um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, so no, nothing kind of like acutely happening um, in terms, in the way of, well, hold that thought before I get ahead of myself, uh, no edema, no ear pain, sore throat, facial pain, or rhinorrhea. 
all the stuff is relevant in a second. Um, physical exam, I'm just trying to keep this on one page, so sorry, it's a little bit crunched in there, but the main specifically contributory um, physical exam findings are that she's non-toxic in appearance. She has no acute distress. She's kind of sitting, she's sitting pretty comfortable. She doesn't really look dysmic. Her respite's a little bit elevated. I didn't put that on her vitals, but it was about um, 22, 24. Um, she, uh, her lung sounds, uh, she, when she's walking around, you can tell she's working a little bit harder. Her lung sounds are showing um, inspiratory and expiratory wheezing throughout um, with uh, just no crackles or, or other, I believe it's adventitious lung sounds is the official name for anything weird sounding. Um, so cardiovascular wise, her regular rate and rhythm, uh, she doesn't have any edema. And then otherwise, she just she's alert oriented, appropriate affect and mood. So COPD, exact, COPD exacerbations, what does that mean? So it's any worsening of respiratory symptoms outside of the day-to-day -day variations that leads to a medication change, right? Like super kind of broad and like not that helpful, right? Um, that's, I'll get into it more in a second though. So that's based on the gold guidelines by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute um, and also the World Health Organization. Those are the two guidelines I'm kind of following um, with this presentation. So what does this actually mean? So according to World, World Health Organization, it's an increased cough. Uh, and sputum purulence um, compared to what they had before. Um, this is uh, what I found in UpToDate. It has to do with like the authors in uh, who wrote the UpToDate article um, about COPD exacerbations and um, you know expert pulmonologists. And I find this a little bit more clinically helpful. So um, there's three kind of markers that there's one that's increased dyspnea increased sputum, and then increased purulence of sputum. And so if you have one or two of those, um, that's considered to be exacerbation. If there's three of them, or if, excuse me, if there's one of those, that could be consistent with an exacerbation. If there's two or more of them, that can be kind of marking the severity, which hold that thought. I'm going to get into more into that in a second. So what are the steps? So number one is always triage. Um, can you safely treat them outpatient or do they have to go to the hospital? So triage has to do with the alarm signs, right? So do they have signs of like agonal breathing, really severe um, dyspnea at rest? Um, they have signs of cyanosis or their SpO2 is less than 88% despite you giving them oxygen. That's really kind of uh, unnerving. Do they have any kind of more severe signs of lethargy, confusion, edema? And then is this a marked increase over baseline compared to before? So like I said, what's really important to, and I'll touch on this more in a second, what is their baseline? So normally she's, she's doing pretty well. She doesn't really have dyspnea on exertion. She really only gets it with strenuous exercise and she really only needs every once in a while that albuterol PRN. And so if she went from that to just really, really severe, that would be much more concerning than if she was already pretty severe and it was just kind of slightly increased, if that makes sense. So other things that are really important to consider, is this person very frail or do they have other comorbidities that could complicate the management and they might need them to be um, in, uh, inpatient admitted? So especially for a pneumonia. So are you worried about them having signs of a fever or other um, crackles or other kind of like adventitious lung sounds when you're listening to them? Do they have a history of arrhythmias, um, heart failure? That's definitely more concerning. Um, diabetes, a lot of people have diabetes, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go to the hospital, but that's just like, kind of like something to think about, um, keeping in the back of your mind if they're more on the severe side and you're a little bit more concerned about them, right? And then do they have any renal or liver failure? So after you've kind of triaged them, the next step is kind of antibiotics or not. So um, treatment, uh, once you've established that they have a COPD exacerbation, like I said, like when, uh, you know, the increase in dyspnea, increase in um, sputum production or increase in sputum purulence, um, you want to treat them as an exacerbation and then decide whether or not they need antibiotics. So everybody gets a bronchodilator, um, either a Saba or a Sama. And so um, short acting beta agonist um, and short acting muscarinic antagonist or the anticholinergic 
allergics. Um, actually, I should have meant, I, I mentioned this in the intro, but um, uh, if you want to download that um, COPD cheat sheet, I talk about the different medications and the different categories for what type of, what level of, of COPD we're talking about here. But anyway, for the, for the exacerbations, everybody gets that. And you can either do that through meter dose inhaler, so just like the kind of pump inhalers versus a nebulizer. Um, you know, the data doesn't necessarily support one over the other, but I find that my patients tend to prefer the nebulizers when they get the exacerbations. I think it's probably just a better delivery. Like they're probably using it more accurately than the meter dose inhalers. And then oral glucocorticoids have shown benefits um, over like placebo in terms of adding that as well. So that is part of the standard of care. Um, and so typically the standard is prednisone 40 milligrams um, for five days. And that's um, a burst, quote unquote, called a burst. You don't have to worry about a taper necessarily for, for people with COPD. When you're giving um, steroids, you want to think about a taper. If you have somebody, if you're definitely, if you're giving consistently giving steroids for more than three weeks, you definitely want to taper somebody off. Um, but if it's less than three weeks, um, I typically only do tapers for certain conditions. Like if you're worried about something being refractory, like if you have sort of like a, a greater than 20% body rash, right? And you want to make sure that it doesn't come right back as soon as you take it off, like those kinds of things. You don't necessarily see that kind of refractory, like bounce back of se severe symptoms with COPD exacerbations in my experience. You definitely want to be mindful of that if, you, if they come off of them and then they're getting worse again, like maybe they just, they need more support, right? Um, and then in terms of the question of like, can I just use an inhaled corticosteroid instead of prednisone? It's not been studied, so I don't recommend um, substituting that. And that's just not recommended in general in the literature. So um, antibiotics, the gold guidelines um, come into play when what they say is when somebody is moderately or severely ill um, with increased cough and sputum purulence, again, like that World Health Organization, that's like the kind of main criteria. So it seems like everybody would, right? Or if they need hospitalization. Another one, again, I was referencing the up-to-date article that I kind of feel like is more concretely guiding is that kind of using that, that two to three criteria that I was talking about. So the increased dyspnea, increased sputum production, and then increased sputum purulence. So if they have at least two of those, then you want to consider giving them antibiotics. Um, and it's really the rationale there is based on studies of um, the people who have moderate to severe COPD exacerbations and their outcomes. You're, um, so it's based on studies that, that just showed those increased outcomes. Um, it's kind of not necessarily because you're worried that they have a pneumonia, if that makes sense. It, it's, it's kind of a, a little bit of a leap, but kind of what you're thinking about is you're targeting the specific my, um, microbes that could be making things more complicated and leading to things like a pneumonia. So Haemophilus influenza, um, Moxarella cateralis, strep pneumonia, things like that. And then what you want to figure out is if they meet the criteria for needing antibiotics, are they complicated or are they uncomplicated? And there's kind of three levels here. So number one is uncomplicated, which is just as is. Um, and I'll talk about the complicated factors. So if they don't have any of those, they're considered uncomplicated. And so those people will get like a macrolide usually. Um, azithromycin is an option. Second or third generation cephalosporin, like a ceftonir, I feel like is the most farm, uh, readily available at the pharmacy. Um, uh, doxycycline or trimethoprine trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, most people know as Bactrim. Um, so complicated is if you have any of these risk factors, and that's age greater than 65 years, their FEV1 is less than 50, so they've got pretty severe COPD, or they've had greater than two exacerbations in a year, or they have known cardiac disease, and you just want to choose a different antibiotic for those people. So that's amoxicillin clavulane or any, any of the fluoroquinolones um, because they just may have increased resistance, um, antibiotic resistance there. Um, and then do they have a risk for pseudomonas? So that's kind of like complicated level 1B. Um, so if they've been hospitalized in the last three months, um, they have any um, colonization of pseudomonas that's known, um, if they've had any treatment for pseudomonas in the past, um, or if they've had frequent antibiotics 
antibiotics in the last year, or they have a comorbid bronchiectasis, which you wouldn't know unless, you know, with this patient necessarily, unless she told you those things. So you'd want to kind of ask about those things. And so those people need cipro, cip, excuse me, ciprofloxacin um, specifically is what is, is what's, um, I found in the literature, not necessarily any fluoroquinolone. Um, and the, for those people, you need a sputum culture and a gram stain because you really um, get a little bit more concerned about that. This really does not come up very often in primary care, but I included it just in case you're kind of seeing the, these more complicated patients. These, the, if they're in that level, they definitely need um, pulmonary involvement. And if you feel like you're getting to this place of you, they have a risk for pseudomonas and you need to send out those tests, me personally, if I was getting there, I would probably give a phone call to the pulmonologist that I was working with that was working with this patient and just be like, hey, FYI, this is what's going on, just so you know any other recommendations you have, things like that. So, um, oops, I did not animate this slide very nicely. So um, number one is triage, um, home or hospital. Number two is deciding if you're going to treat them for um, an exacerbation, do they need antibiotics? And number three is what is their follow-up care? So all patients with COPD need these things. So number one is to identify and avoid triggers, talking about smoking cessation. And maybe you're talking about it at this visit, or maybe you're talking about it the next time you see them. Um, it depends on how overwhelmed the patients get, but things to think about. Um, making sure they're user, using their inhalers correctly and medication adherence, you want to kind of check in with that every time you see the patient. So especially for this type, this patient with an exacerbation, I definitely would go through that if they didn't have a nebulizer. Like, do you know how to use your metered dose inhaler? Are you using a spacer? Things like that. And how often are you taking your medications? For her, again, she was only taking a PRN, and that's how it was prescribed. So um, we don't have to necessarily worry about that as much. But you always want to think about vaccines. So making sure that their tetanus is up to date, um, tetanus, a Tdap rather, um, with pertussis in there um, is once as an adult and then a TD booster every 10 years. Um, pneumococcal, there's a couple of rules about that, but if you download that um, cheat sheet, I'll talk about the different rules that we have for the pneumococcal vaccines and then a seasonal influenza vaccine. Um, and then just anybody with COPD, you want to kind of make sure that they're on like a lifestyle regimen of exercise and general healthy diet and also thinking about weight management. So this patient, for example, her BMI is 31. Um, increasing, um, increasing BMIs, especially in the obese range, can lead to more dyspnea, right, which makes total sense. So you want to kind of think about that. Again, I'm not talking about weight management during an exacerbation visit, but these are just kind of like holistic checking in about COPD management, right? And again, lung cancer screening, we're probably not going to talk about this at this visit, but you want to think about, did she probably need lung cancer screening, right? And like, what are the risks and benefits of doing that? What does that mean? Things like that, because that's more of a discussion. I find that most people are a little bit resistant to lung cancer screening. I think that they're a little bit scared of what it means and, and what it can do for them, but we can find things early, you know? So the, the, the criteria there is age 55 to 74, but, you know, considerations of up to 80 if somebody, depending on, on their clinical condition, if they would, could undergo um, and withstand some kind of lung cancer treatment, right? And then the criteria also is that they need to have a 30-pack year smoking history. And if they've quit, um, they have to need to they need to have quit within the last 15 years to qualify for the lung cancer screening. If they quit like 30 years ago, they're not they don't qualify. Um, and pulmonary rehabilitation came up in the literature of what I was reading a lot. And this tends to this has to do with like a more comprehensive kind of like lifestyle exercise program um, that I believe would be done by a pulmonology office. I haven't really seen that much in the clinical practice. Maybe this is like a newer thing or maybe just I'm just not seeing it as much. But it would it's not something I've ever ordered or referred somebody for, but I'd probably make sure that they were hooked in with pulmonology if they had a diagnosis of COPD and they can kind of decide you know, how do they assist them with that and like how often they want to be monitoring them, right? And then there's a question of annual spirometry. I believe those are the gold guidelines. I couldn't really find um, good stuff uh, about that, but um, 
annual spirometry is in there. Um, so in terms of the pulmonary function test versus spirometry, spirometry is part of those. Um, that's kind of getting into a little bit more. Um, if you have questions about that, definitely let me know. But I'm not going to be doing that myself. I'm going to make sure that they're with pulmonology and they are going to order that test and follow up on that. And then there's a question of getting a baseline ABG, um, arterial blood gas. And again, I'm not going to order that. That's a very painful test. And I don't necessarily, I couldn't necessarily find guidelines about that, but I've definitely seen that in clinical practice um, of having that as a baseline so that when they get hospitalized and they do an ABG, um, arterial blood gas, they'll make sure that like see where they are compared to their normal, right? And then a baseline chest x-ray as well, especially like the first time they're getting diagnosed. And so one of the things you want to think about is the assessment of the gold classification. And so it used to be, I think when I was in school, they, they based it on the FEV1 in terms of severity of COPD. And then they gave your medications based on that. But I believe the revised guidelines um, have to do with just symptoms. Because even if somebody has worse COPD, meaning a lower FEV1, um, that doesn't necessarily, they're at higher risk for exacerbations, but it doesn't necessarily guide their medications by the evidence of what they found, right? So this table is going to be a lot. So just, just I'll walk you through it. Um, there's ABCD. Basically, you want to classify your symptoms as mild or moderate, mild or moderate to severe, and then their risk for um, uh, worsening, right? And so level A is that they have mild and infrequent symptoms. And so symptoms can be measured by a couple different ways. It's kind of, like I said, breathless with strenuous exercise, but otherwise they're kind of doing fine. Um, there are some scoring uh, tools, which I'll include in that handout, which I actually haven't used myself, but I'm thinking about using. And also, um, I, I have yet to explore this app, but there is an app uh, with the gold COPD guidelines where you can kind of type your symptoms in, and then they'll give you recommendations from there. But again, I have to play with it a little bit, but it's not, I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to play with that. So so if they haven't had an exacerbation in a year, they have mild symptoms overall, you can do that combination. Uh, you can either do the solitary um, uh, albuterol PRN, like which is what this patient, this, this patient is a level A, right? Because that, that was her baseline information. And you can, you can consider that or just ipotropium or a combination of uh, the albuterol ipotropium um, inhalers. So, and then level B is just, they have more moderate symptoms, but they still are a low risk, meaning that they haven't had any exacerbations, either they're zero or one in the last year, and they've never been hospitalized. And that kind of gives you your treatment options of a llama or a lava, which is long acting and, a, and, um, uh, uh, anticholinergic as well as a beta agonist. And again, this whole, this is all in the handout if you want to um, download that. And then level C is going back to that mild and infrequent, but they have more exacerbations uh, in a year and they've been hospitalized. And then the kind of like level D, which is kind of the hardest worst case scenario is that they have moderate to severe symptoms on a regular basis. And they also are getting hospitalized multiple times or having multiple exacerbations per year and their treatment is guided on there. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to be too, too wordy on this. So you can download that and take a look at that. And I also have examples of what the medications are on there too. So you don't have to just think about llama. Like what are we talking about here? We're talking about tiotropium, spiriva, things like that. So again, so what's next? Let's go back to Carolyn. So, so again, she's not for, we can continue with outpatient management because she's not severely above her baseline. She doesn't have any signs of cyanosis and her, her O2 is greater than um, 88%. Um, and it's not like refractory to oxygenation. Um, she doesn't have any signs of comor comorbid exacerbations. Like I'm not worried about a pneumonia here. She doesn't have AFib. She doesn't have um, diabetes that we know of, like things like that. Uh, again, going back to those gold symptoms baseline, like she is at, she's level A in her baseline symptoms. So, so, and where she is right now is like only at mild to 
moderate to severe in terms of the exacerbation type. So um, she has a moderate exacerbation based, again, going back to those three things, two out of three or three out of three, she has an increase in sputum, increase in purulence, and then she has an increase in dyspnea. So she's considered a moderate exacerbation at least. And then she doesn't have any risk factors for the complication um, of the exacerbation, right? So like the age, recent hospitalization, things like that. Um, again, all in the handout. Um, so management for her. So we're going to continue inhalers, add prednisone, and then add azithromycin for her. We're going to review the alarm signs and symptoms of when to go to the hospital. So just in case this medication treatment therapy doesn't work. Um, and we're going to review her records. Again, she's a brand new patient, so we're going to get the records from her last um, uh, PCP. She's going to need a pulmonology eval. I definitely again, hook people who have COPD in with, with the pulmonologist, whether or not they see them once a year or every six months is kind of up to their determination, but like they're going to decide if, when and how often, uh, she needs to have those pulmonary function tests versus spirometry. Um, and then, um, you know, they can decide again about that pulmonary rehabilitation if they have access to a program like that. Again, going back to vaccines, bringing up the flu vaccine, the tetanus, and the pneumococcal vaccine, she declines today, but again, we don't really have records. So we'll kind of check on those once we get those. And then lung cancer screening, I, I did bring it up. I'm a little overly ambitious sometimes, but she said she's going to consider it. Um, so again, um, just kind of recap of, of all the management things that I said. And um, uh, yeah, and I'm going to have her come back in three months. I'm going to request the previous records from PCP. We might talk about um, weight management, things like that. Did you like this video? If so, hit like and subscribe and share with your NP friends so together we can reach as many new grads and new nurse practitioners as possible to help make their practice a little bit easier. Um, don't forget to head over to realworldnp.com to um, sign up for the email list. You'll get these videos sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, more insights, and just bonus content that I really just don't share anywhere else. Um, you'll also get the ultimate resource guide for the new NP if you haven't grabbed that already. Um, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about this video. Um, do you have any things about COPD, any uh, lingering questions you still have or things that you feel a lot better about? I'd love to hear in the comments below. Thank you so much again for watching. Hang in there and I'll see you soon. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.